0: I've learned my lesson. I always hit record as soon as we get on the call, you never know. Sometimes you just end up in it.
1: Michael Waits Media. Okay, let's do this. Hi, this is Michael Waits and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. We are joined by Adam Simon, the easiest name I've had all week, US (laughs) head of innovation at UM Worldwide. Adam, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's super great to have you here. How are you doing, by the way?
0: Uh, Doing great, doing great. Thanks for having me, Michael. It's an honor to be here.
1: It's my pleasure. And where are you based right now?
0: Uh, I'm based in New York City.
1: Oh my gosh, it's late for you then, isn't it?
0: Uh, It is late. It is late. But, uh, you know, we are a very global organization and a global culture these days. And I'm used to late nights and early mornings to chat with my friends on the other side of the world.
1: Fair enough. I mean, I worked at Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs for 20 something years in Tokyo. And we suffered from the fact that our main offices were in New York. So our phone calls were always at the convenience (laughs) of the people on the trading desk there. So I sympathize with you today. (laughs) Anyway, thank you for this. (laughs) Are you originally from New York, by the way?
0: Uh, I'm not. I grew up in Southern California in Orange County outside of Los Angeles.
1: Awesome. I was born in Santa Barbara, but did not live there for that long, to be fair.
0: Nice. Nice. Yeah.
1: Anyway, so before we get into the main part of this conversation, let's get a little bit more of your background just for some context, then we can jump in.
0: Uh, yeah, so I have a really uh, bizarre career. I, I worked in, uh, in theater when I was younger and then went to grad school uh, because I uh, always had sort of an interest in a penchant for technology. Went to a super weird grad school program at NYU that it was basically uh, a creative technology program. Uh, and coming out of that, I started a small uh, company, which turned into kind of a digital agency called Social Bomb. We started out trying to make uh, social software and mobile software right around the time that uh, the iPhone was launching, uh, and that turned into uh, for more from a product company into more of an agency and sort of doing that work uh, for other clients uh, and doing some some awesome work with. Folks like uh, HBO, which uh, led me to uh, work with some people that would eventually, through some fits and starts and an acquisition, uh, lead me to where I am now, which is at at UM Worldwide, uh, as well as running uh, the IPG Media Lab, which is sort of the innovation-focused arm inside of IPG. Okay. Um, and we are really focused on consumer behavior, changing consumer behaviors and how technology and new media are disrupting existing businesses.
1: I want to get to this in a second, but I'm interested in somebody who goes from theater (laughs) into creative technology, because I want to understand whether when you were a kid and you said, Oh God, I'm really interested in theater that you were also interested in tech and that at some point in the future, you saw those two things merging or is this just happenstance for you?
0: Uh, You know, it's interesting. There were, there were actually a lot of theater people in that graduate program and we talked about it a lot. I think that there is uh, just, there's something, a similar creative impulse in terms of the constraints of making theater or, you know, or scripted entertainment or film or television and working with technology, where you're working within certain constraints, but there's a lot of creativity inside of those constraints, and you can really push the limits in in new and interesting ways. And uh, yeah, I don't know, it's, it's weird, but I've met a decent number of other people who have those sort of crossover interests. And for me, it was really looking at a career path at some point, moving forward in theater, and where I would be, you know, 10 or 20 years in the future and thinking, you know, that could be fun, but also like, it's a lot of work. And I somehow had this idea that working in tech was going to be less work in in a specific way. And it's just, it's just not, (laughs) I've definitely rewound some of my career choices and thought, well, what if I had gone in this direction? It's like, I probably would end up at about the same place in about the same amount of time. Fair enough. But, you know, I, I do think that at the end of the day, I think having some a a different background, not having a pure tech background gives me a different, a little bit of a different perspective in terms of what's, what's happening and how, how the culture is developing around it.
1: I think it's impossible to be a great technologist without being really creative. And I think that if you look at, like, you can't even be a great musician without being really intelligent. It's so technical. If you look at great guitarists or great piano players. And I think that there was a part of me when I was a kid who was really into science and really into math and was told all the time, like, you're just not, your creative side just isn't there. But you did both of those things kind of together. And I think that's actually super cool because I think if you encourage people that are into tech to also sort of look into and dig deeper into their creative side, that their ability then to take tech and be creative with it, particularly in the creative arts, it just makes them so much more powerful. Is that fair? Yeah,
0: I think that's, that's totally right. You know, I, and I think that's, a little bit of how I ended up where I am now is that I have written code and written apps. I've built physical electronics. Uh, I realized at some point I was never going to be the best at any of those things. What I was really good at was understanding what was capable inside of those spheres and then helping other people also understand what is capable and how those capabilities could could help them and or could impact them, I guess, uh, when we talk about our, our clients and how we work with them to help them under future-proof their businesses and understand sort of the changes that are going to impact how they connect with consumers.
1: What is UM Worldwide?
0: Uh, UM Worldwide is a media agency. Agency, okay. So we are, yeah, we are helping uh, our clients navigate, uh, emerging media channels and ways to connect with their consumers. And increasingly, you know, traditionally that has been a, you know, buying television, for example, right. uh, and then moving into sort of buying digital services as well. But increasingly that also means future-proofing their business against disruption from changing consumer behaviors, new entrants into the market, um, increasingly it's about helping them understand, how their industries are changing. Uh, and for me, the fun part is that uh, obviously you can do that inside one of these companies sometimes, depending on, on how forward thinking and innovative they are. right? Um, but the fun part about doing it externally is we get to work across pretty much every industry. So there's literally one day we're we're working on the future of like pet healthcare, which right. is uh, near and dear to me as a pet owner. Uh, and then the next day we're talking about, well, okay, COVID's happening, what's happening to the film and television industry right now, and how is, what's going to happen to theatrical movies, you know, over the next two years. Um, so that, that is the super fun part about it.
1: Do you feel like sometimes that stuff is moving too fast for your clients, just when they figure out how to take advantage of Snapchat?
0: <laughs>
1: I'm serious about this, right? in other words, yeah, yeah. you go to them, you're like, here's a new channel, we've got to get, it. we've got to be on Snapchat, you've got to do this kind of stuff. And then Instagram just immediately changes and like co, you know, co-op stories. But then out of nowhere, people are dancing on TikTok and then TikTok has a business side of it as well. Like, did this feel like it's moving too fast? Because for you, it's super fun. You're like, oh my God, a new medium. I can play with this. But for them, is their head spinning all the time?
0: I, you know, it depends a lot on the client. Uh, I think that the thing that I increasingly am trying to get them to understand, especially coming out in this sort of late COVID period. Right. Uh, I don't want to say coming out of COVID because knock on wood, we'll see. Yeah. But this late COVID period of uh, it's things are not going to slow down. They're not going to settle. Uh, and we're basically in a period, I would say, probably for the rest of the decade at least, that is going to be constant accelerating change. Yeah. Things are just going to be constantly changing. And the sooner you embrace the idea that anything's gonna settle down and we're just gonna have a new template or even or a new normal as people liked to say uh, a year ago. Right. It's just gonna be constant change. And the sooner you get used to that idea and get comfortable in the fact that it's constantly changing, the more you can sort of capitalize on that experience.
1: I have a whole show about insurance and insurtech. The insurance companies were late to digital transformation because they didn't have to be, their margins were high Insurance penetration in Asia in particular is still like 05 or 1% of GDP, so it's still really low, whereas in the U.S. it's like 6%. So there's massive growth. They didn't have to worry about digital transformation. But COVID and everybody working at home removed the sort of agent-to-person relationship that everybody had. It was obvious that they needed to now do digital distribution and digitally transform their entire enterprise. Otherwise, they were going to get left behind from the insurtechs. I'm curious what the impact on the media landscape was, and i'll and I'll give you an example. Do you like the studio where I'm sitting right now?
0: Yeah, it looks great.
1: It looks awesome, right? You've got the sign yeah. in the background, you've got people walking around behind me and all this stuff. yeah, it's super. This studio where I sit is awesome, except I'm not really there.
0: yeah, of course not. <laughs>
1: like you would know but most people don't know i've got a green screen behind me i've got a video running here this microphone's actually real the only two real things here are me and the microphone the chair is real too but the point is that (laughs) media is changing so fast that even in my studio here and frankly in my the studio in my house i can do things like this and i'm curious how else you because i think that media just like everything else i don't like to use the word being democratized but it's really coming all the way down in my mind to the bottom of the funnel and saying even someone like i am can do this i'm yeah. curious how you see this changing and, and i agree with you i don't think it's going to be like here's the change now run with it for the next five years yeah so i'm curious no, what no, you see not. happening anyway
0: yeah no i mean i i totally uh, you know I, I think about this a lot and there was a you know it's almost cliché to say at this point, but COVID was a huge accelerator yep. of just adoption of all kinds of things. To your point in the in- insurance industry, it just moved forward. What was going to happen eventually, but yep. it just moved it forward very quickly. And you know, to your point about creative tools, uh, you know, we're at a point where the creative tools that are available for not very much money at all um, are available to everyone. And at the same time, the past. Two years have really turned everybody into a content creator. Exactly. Because we're obviously doing this for a podcast on a recording. We're recording on purpose. But even if we were having this call as colleagues on Zoom, uh, we're still producing media for each other at the end of the day. And I think that a thing that people are starting to wrap their heads around is that even if I'm just on a Zoom call, don't I want to? Good, a camera that's better than my laptop camera. Yep. A microphone that's better than so my laptop. So glad you're saying this. Maybe you need to get. I'm I'm staring directly into a ring light right now, even right. though we're not recording video, but it's there, right? And I think that the all of those tools that were like these, I wouldn't. They're not. They weren't niche, but they were for a specific creator community. Yeah, are the kinds of things that people are starting to adopt in in business, in education. So much of our daily life. Has become about media production, even though we don't call it that. Um, and I think that's going to have profound impacts on what happens next. Because once you get comfortable with those tools, you realize, oh, I could be, you know, a YouTuber or a Twitch streamer or a podcaster, uh, and you have all the tools and all the know-how. And that's just, I think, increasing the expansion of this of content creation beyond people who even think about themselves as creators.
1: Right, so my way of saying this is that if you're going to show up even to an internal meeting, right, you should have a decent microphone because the way you sound is important. You definitely should have a good camera because you don't want to be staring down into your laptop and have that view where it looks like it's coming up from you. You don't know this, but you're sitting on a 72-inch television set literally with your head (laughs) directly (laughs) above the lens of my 4K shooting camera. Yeah. But the other thing is you wouldn't go to the prom... In a t shirt, in a tank top, and a pair of shorts, and in an old car, because it's just the wrong method for doing that. And you're right, as people get more and more used to this, there are going to be more good microphones, more green screens in people's offices, and more great cameras so that the presentation is better, just like it would be in a regular business meeting where you show up in a shirt and tie, and you exactly. have a PowerPoint thing, you have a nice laptop that doesn't have stickers all over it. Like the presentation matters, and people are starting to figure this out.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think obviously some of those in-person meetings are going to start happening again, but not all of them. We know that a lot of them are going to remain remote and it's, there's going to be, it's going to be very obvious which individuals on some circumstances and in some circumstances, which organizations, which companies are really investing to make that experience the best for the people on the other side of that, of that camera and microphone. Right. Um, And I, yeah, it's, I don't think it's crazy to think that some of the conference rooms in our offices when we go back should be turned into things that look more like studios, more like sound stages. I'm going to build them out here. what we'll use them for. (laughs) Yeah,
1: I'm definitely, I'm in the process of looking for locations and building all that stuff out here. I think one of the seminal moments for me, and I'm curious about your opinion on this as well, is the interview that Oprah did with Barack Obama. They weren't in the same room. (laughs) Yeah. They weren't even in the room that you saw. That was all green screened yeah. and that was all yeah. computer graphics. So he was in a room that was completely green screened. And so was she sitting on a similar chair. And what they did was they put furniture that referenced the furniture in the scene next to them. So it tricked the brain into believing that they were in the same room when they demonstrably were not, but you can do that too. And I mean, you're right about the tools. I'm curious about your opinion here. I'm just shooting this on OBS, right? So yeah, and it's free. Yeah. But most. But if I ask my brother, who's a neurosurgeon, right? So 10 times smarter than I am, do you know what OBS is? He'd have no idea. It's not about how smart you are. It's about the tools that you use every day. And I think yeah. that's changing radically as well. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, no. I mean, a neurosurgeon, his tools aren't changing that quickly yet. They will probably they will. within the next decade, right? Yeah. But uh, right now it's very early days. I just was reading something a couple of days ago about how they're starting to train doctors in using VR because it's gives them a closer, uh, it's still not gr- perfect, but it's a closer experience to uh, eventually what they're going to be doing in real life. Can fast forward that by five or 10 years and you can see how it gets there pretty quickly.
1: Can you talk a little bit about how distribution has changed like over the last five or so years from your perspective? Again, I look at it from what I've been doing just over the past three to five. And distribution for me has become so much easier. Again, you have to know how to use the tools though, right? But it's now global. Like the podcast that we're recording for has listeners in 140 countries.
0: Yeah, I mean, we talk about global culture. We've been talking about it for years now because it's, uh, and I think it was the kind of, basically as soon as, Global culture has always been a little bit global for things like podcasts and things like Twitch streams and and what have you, right. and YouTube, obviously. Uh, I, I think the 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 turning point for professionally produced media was when Netflix flipped the lights on uh, right. globally, and back in 2017. Uh, you know that is almost five years ago now, and wow. it is we're still seeing some of the traditional film and television companies struggling with unwinding some of their contracts to get to a place like that. You know, Disney just bought everybody out. They right. just they did. It's the like problem. mine. Uh, Apple said we're not going to deal with the problem. We're not going to buy any library content uh, for the most part. Right. So, like they they saw that it was important to sort of be have have a global perspective on these things the others are, are slowly unwinding that. Uh, And I think that that is going to take a little bit longer than it probably should. And I think it's going to impact them negatively. And I think it has been impacting them negatively. You can't have a a squid game on HBO max right now. Why? Uh, Oh, we signed these other contracts five years ago and it's like, okay, (laughs) it's, I understand how those things happen, but it's not great when you can't undo them. Uh, And as we know, five, you know, it, if it takes them another even three years to undo all those contracts, three years is a long time in this business and uh, a lot is going to change and you're going to lose a lot of ground to your competitors in the meantime. So,
1: I mean, the legacy distribution systems out there created DVD regions, right? We used to buy region-free DVD (laughs) players because we lived in Japan, but wanted to buy a DVD from the United States and, you know, region-free CD players and stuff like that. So very familiar with that. I'm curious about your view on, Right, because all of this stuff is global, but you can't distribute in Indonesia the same way you distribute in Vietnam, even though nominally they're both in what we call Southeast Asia. How do you look at and sort of talk with your clients about localization, which is more than just like translating it or subtitling it, yeah?
0: Yeah, I think that it is, it's challenging because you do, and, and this is something that I think you know, even talking about things on on social, let's say, where you, you, maybe you have the, you can, you can actually get it to eyeballs in those places, but is it going to be received the same way? Is it going to be interpreted the same way? That's something that's a challenge for everybody. I think that it is uh, making it broadly available and accessible and the accessibility would be the language component. Um, But, still needing some local expertise in terms of how to actually help it connect with people exactly. uh, and to make sure that it gets in front of the right people. It, it is it is a, a strategy that involves being both looking at it globally, but then also having experts on the ground who can really speak to the local culture and the local influencers, frankly.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Look, I was watching a commercial yesterday. I can't remember which movie it was, but it, it actually came out and said explicitly on the advertisement, in movie theaters only, yeah, right? a lot of
0: them are doing that these days.
1: <laughs> but, but so, how has this changed, right? So you mentioned Netflix before. And you know, Netflix. If I remember the statement correctly, when it first started licensing content from the big creative houses, you know, they said, "Look, I don't really care about the Lithuanian army." Right? They're just just not that big and not that strong. And now, you know, Netflix is spending nine, ten, pick a number, eleven billion dollars a year on creating their own content. And it's definitely yeah. not the Lithuanian army, army anymore. <laughs> yeah, but what is the impact of all these streaming services on you know movie and television and the way that stuff gets distributed now
0: i mean it, it, there's just <laughs> there's an outpouring of opportunity for creators of professionally produced scripted and in, increasingly unscripted as well content right. for uh, for these services Uh, It is definitely a golden era in terms of there being so much amazing television that you will never have time to watch it all. (laughs) Uh, I I think we've been it's probably been close to a decade now when uh, it's been impossible for anybody to watch all of the television and actually tell you what was the best thing on TV at any given time. Right, right. Uh, it's so huge boom for creators which is great it will contract again eventually we're not going to stay in this boom mode forever um you know there there will be competition will eventually narrow the uh, uh the pathways again and that's part of netflix's bet in terms of they can't keep spending this much money forever no. they're assuming that at some point they will outlast and outspend enough other Folks, that some of these other services start to license content to them again, um, and I think that's probably true. I don't know that the appetite at all of the uh, all of the studios, even the ones that are even studios that are owned by larger conglomerates, is going to f- fund this endless runway for for more than another five years or so. Um, but in the meantime, that is you know it, it, what the effect it's having is shifting consumer attention. Fully over to streaming. Um, a lot of accelerated cord cutting uh, here in the US that that sort of tipped over into into larger numbers during COVID, and really it's just news and sports that's holding up, propping up uh, regular television, legacy and legacy distribution. And I think you know, I, I, sports is going to. Everyone was counting on sports to hold it up until. Uh, for another few years, but sports is crumbling faster than people thought it would because of the regional sports networks struggling for uh, uh, to to turn a profit. So it's one of those things that I, I'm forgetting who said this, but it's the the quote about going broke where uh, it happens slowly and then quickly. And uh, exactly. I think we're entering the end quickly phase faster than people were really prepared for.
1: Exactly. Bankruptcy. It, it starts yes. really slowly and then it happens immediately. Do you feel like at some level, the entertainment and the media industry has kind of followed your path in a way? right? So you started with <laughs> theater, you ended up in tech and then you merged the two of those things together. And then you have all this creative stuff going on, whether it's at you know Fox or wherever. and Sony, Sony tried this decades ago, didn't do it so well. But now you see Apple, Google, Amazon fancying themselves as not just tech companies but media companies as well. Did they call you yeah. and ask you if they could copy or? <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, it's, uh, it, it's funny. I hadn't thought about it that way. But yeah, I mean, I think the the, the, the rationale here is that uh, for Apple or Amazon or or Google, if they sort of get their act together, uh, they can afford to fund things at Netflix levels or higher, exactly. basically forever yep. uh, in order to grow ecosystem value. Um, and I think that there are inside of Hollywood, there are people who are happily taking the checks from them because no one's going to turn down a giant check from Apple, uh, and I, and they pretty much let them. You know, it's the Netflix model. You can, we're going to be pretty hands off. We're not really going to give you any notes. It's just, you know, we're we're greenlighting you, and everybody loves that. But I think there is a little existential discomfort there with the fact that at the end of the day, um, you know, I think no matter how well. And Apple promotes your, your movie or your show. It's really just fodder for selling more iPhones or right. fodder for Amazon for selling more toilet paper or what have you. Uh, and I think there's a, you know, the shift into streaming for, for music really turns the entire music industry into an app on your phone, right. right. It's either Spotify or Apple music or maybe Amazon at this point. And the same thing is happening to Hollywood. It's just turning an entire industry into a few, a handful at the end of the day, of apps on your phone. And there are pluses and minuses to that. The music industry is making more money than they have in a long time, right. and Hollywood is is also, if you look at sort of the collective in terms of, of how much money is being spent. But there is a little, I think, existential angst around the idea of just being a feature of a smartphone. Right, uh, and I get that. It's it's a little, uh, it's a little. Uncomfortable, but I do think that's where you know it's better than, than the news industry and what's what's happening with journalism, unfortunately. That's not good. Uh, that transition hasn't <laughs> actually morphed into uh, just being a well-paid app on your phone, right? Um, so you know, there there are worse fates.
1: Yeah. So if my memory serves me correctly, Shonda Rhimes signed a gigantic deal, right? So and good for her. But also, I remember listening to Ken Burns, right? Who does all the documentary stuff and. Vietnam was actually one of my favorites. But he was asked as well, you know, what would it take to lure you onto one of these new streaming platforms? And I think he does his stuff with PBS. I don't know for sure.
0: Yeah, yeah. He's he is still funded by PBS. But he said,
1: he said they let me do whatever I want to do. And I'm not doing this just for the money. I want to produce great content. I want to have great conversations. And I think that that talks to some of the angst you were talking about. Like Sure, he could probably go and triple or double the money that he's getting paid at PBS, but then he's got to be, like you said, a feature on an app as opposed to a really creative person who's trying to tell a story. And that's a big, that's a very different thing. Yeah.
0: I, I don't think they're mutually exclusive.
1: They don't have to be.
0: They don't, I don't think they have to be. I, I, an example that I like to throw out, which I think is, Everybody has mixed feelings about is what happened with Sesame Street, where Sesame Street now premieres first on HBO Max because everybody needs children's content. That's super important for to reduce churn on your services. Right. Uh, Everybody has their sort of prestige children's brand. Uh, Warner got a Sesame Street. And Sesame Street also had been funded by PBS yes. for forever, uh, and it, they still receive some funding from PBS. But now they're super well funded because they're getting giant checks from Warner Media. Yeah. And on one hand, that's great; we don't have to worry about the federal government suddenly deciding that PBS is not a priority and cutting their budget and Sesame Street going right. away. Right. On the other hand, I don't know. It's big, a little yeah. Uh, big bird should not Sesame be driving Street
1: a Ferrari, totally. right? I mean.
0: Yeah, yeah. Do you want Sesame Street to only be for people who can afford HBO Max? No, uh, no, you don't, uh, no. and it doesn't. There's, it trickles down eventually. It eventually still all goes to PBS, but uh, it's a little, a little uncomfortable. But also uh, better. I don't know. It's is it better? Unclear.
1: Can we talk about media without talking about blockchain or the metaverse? <laughs> Is it possible? I mean, we, ha- we
0: have been up until now, so. <laughs>
1: right, but I mean, we haven't really talked about it explicitly. So my idea on this is that people at scale over time are really starting to organize around interests, right? As opposed to geographical locations, right? So if you're yes. into a specific kind of art, you can appreciate that art from Indonesia, from Vietnam, and from Santa Barbara, right? Yes. And that, that is both the power and sort of the drawback of what's going to happen in the metaverse because you can gather there and when the technology gets really good and it really feels like you're there and you and I both have a green screen in our room and we sit in a room that's fully immersive then we can be in the same place at the same time without goggles on and all the silliness and have some sort of tactile feedback so I can shake your hand and I can touch the art or whatever it is. That to me is the real power of this. And I think that frankly, it brings the world together in a way that we haven't been able to do before because of the distance.
0: Yeah, I I totally agree. I think that, first of all, I think that a lot of the pieces and very low resolution versions of what will be the metaverse are already here today. We're doing it right now Yeah, in some some respect, right? It's not great, but it's better than it would have been 10 years ago because 10 years ago, our video would have been super low quality and our audio would have sucked. And uh, probably your green screen effects wouldn't have worked on whatever laptop or computer you're using, right? Like it's, uh, it it improves. I think that what has happened over the past two years because of the pandemic is that there's just been a lot more interest and a lot more money funneling into how do we make what we're doing right now better. Right. And, uh, you know, some of that's going to not be the, some people's companies will choose the wrong path and it won't pan out. Others will choose, you know, the, the right thing. And eventually we'll find our way to higher resolution, more immersive virtual presence. I think about it as presence, really. It's like we have live presence on the internet in a lot of different pockets right now. I think it's, you know, a lot of folks who are excited about what's happening with the metaverse are, are on Discord, which is a live has its own sort of live presence. Right. Or the, you're you're in uh, you're in a VR workspace, or you're playing multiplayer video games with each other. Those are all different form. Or you're even, frankly, in a, editing a Google Doc together. Maybe right. the lowest form of presence, but you that cursor is there, and you you know if somebody is in that document live editing. And I think that all of these things are just going to constantly increase in resolution until we get to something more immersive. And what that will be, I think, has less to do with whatever Mark Zuckerberg might say in on stage or in his his promo videos, and more with what we figure out works best for us culturally. I think that there are ideas there that have been around since the seventies, frankly, sure. that are probably not going to pan out the way that that people that we're thinking about them today. We're probably going to try them and say. Well, that was an idea of how to work with somebody in in uh, in the metaverse, and maybe we'll come up with something better. But um, it's the same as with every technology. We'll we'll grope our way there and find the right thing eventually.
1: So I think you've hit on something actually really important, and that is that companies like Facebook, they can call themselves whatever they want, but everyone's going to call them Facebook the same way people call Alphabet, Google. Yeah. <laughs> will create the tools potentially because they have the money for us to exist better and to have that presence that you were talking about in the metaverse, which we won't even call it the metaverse. We'll just call it reality as we go yeah. forward. But because the technology is becoming so ubiquitous, it means that you and I are going to create the metaverse the way we want it to be created as a, because the tools are available. Right, like I said, yeah. I'm 56 years old. I shouldn't know how to do any of this stuff, but because the <laughs> tools are so good and because I'm interested, I can figure out how to make myself. I could, I, if I had a video of your next door neighbor, I could be sitting in their apartment and you would freak out, right? Yeah,
0: yeah. And that's possible <laughs>
1: to do. Yeah. I was actually joking with a friend yesterday. Like, you could take a video of the classroom at school because she's a professor. And then freak out the students by broadcasting from home and be like, it doesn't seem like you're here, but it looks like you are. Like, I think we're going to create this That's thing. Great. <laughs> I right? I don't think Facebook is.
0: I, I 100% agree. And I think that you can see it if you look at book. First of all, Facebook themselves have some very strange ideas about how people interact online that I don't think are fully accurate, which I think explains a lot of the, the issues that they have. Um, but if you look at what they're doing the Horizon VR products right now, Horizon Workrooms is like a very basic, very 1.0 thing, fine, it's a proof of concept. But the Horizon, the the social experience that they built, they built this whole virtual world and then had no idea what to do with it. (laughs) There's nothing to do there. And it's basically just open for other people to create content in, which I don't think is the wrong idea, but they don't even have like, I think, good proof of concepts uh, for how it should work, which is why I think I'm more interested in what's happening in things like Fortnite or Roblox or Minecraft, because you can see real creativity happening there. And you can see people logging on with a purpose. Uh, And I think that Facebook has not shown that they know how to start that creative engine role. You have to start somewhere. You can't can't just give people a blank canvas in a new medium and expect them to know what to do. Uh, And I think that they need to figure out how to rev that engine somehow.
1: So everything that Facebook does, they kind of do for themselves and they're not really good at sharing, which is fascinating for a company that was built on sharing photos, but you'll see what I mean in a second. And again, I'm happy to be wrong here. I want to go over to e-commerce, though, and look at a company like Shopify that has basically built an API platform that allows companies to build services on top of their platform and become very wealthy doing that. My favorite example is Shogun, or Shogun if you want to pronounce it properly, that built a page builder for Shopify that plugs into their APIs that allows Shopify's customers to pay Shogun to do that so to me, the platforms that are open that allow people to plug into them and do the creative things that maybe they can't do are gonna be the platforms that succeed at scale, right? So if you had something called, you know, Metaversify, and you're right, those game, Roblox, I can never remember the name of the other game. I just cannot, just leaves my brain. What was the other one you said?
0: Minecraft or Minecraft, Fortnite. yeah. So
1: my, my daughter never played Minecraft, but these businesses have also figured out how to let people create and do mods and all these other things, right? Yeah, and I mean, I think it's companies like that that are going to create the platform. Sorry, that are going to be able to build a metaverse that we're going to be able to take advantage of. Go ahead.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. I, I, you know, I <laughs> clearly Roblox is a platform that is has a relatively accessible creative platform. There are probably seven-year-olds on Roblox who were making more money than me just selling content inside of Roblox (laughs) or you or any of us at this point. Like, I'm I'm pretty sure that's true. Um, But I think what's missing right now in the immersive space or basically in in any sort of 3D immersive, whether we're talking about AR or VR content, is it's still a little, the tools are too new. They're still a little too complicated. What we need to really turbocharge the creativity there is something... Uh, like the the Shogun or yep. or the way I think about it is like we what we need is TikTok for immersive environments where I can take something, I can be in your thing and like it and then copy and paste it into my thing where I can alter some stuff and then republish it. Like the thing about TikTok is the reason that they're so successful is they just made the creative tools so dead simple right. that uh, you can engage with it. And it was the creative tools and sort of the the community and the the sort of expectations of the platform are that you would take somebody else's content and change it slightly and do your version of it. Right. Um, and I think we really need that in in uh, 3D immersive tools at this point. We need the view, source, copy, paste, edit two lines, publish. Uh, and I think that I think we will get there. I think we're probably within a few years of getting there with uh, with AR, with like 3D objects. I think we're pretty close to there's some APIs which are not exposed to the public in right. the newest version of iOS but that developers can use to scan objects and like that's a good step in the right direction if i can start scanning objects in my home into a 3D immersive space that's going to be a huge step in the right direction
1: do you advise people through um and some of the stuff you some of the other stuff you're doing as well about how to use technology real time streaming all this stuff that we've been discussing for commerce, like real live e-commerce as well.
0: Yeah, we've been increasingly talking about um, just turning everything into shoppable media, uh, just right. at any time. We're, we're we're not quite there culturally in the U.S. yet, as, as much as I know in, in lots of Asia. But it here, is it's just like every day. Everywhere, yeah. yeah.
1: Um,
0: but everybody knows it's coming. And so I, we've been increasingly talking to our clients about... Collapsing that funnel in that it, this the second that somebody sees uh, anything about your product, whether that's uh, an actual ad or a commercial, or right. you're working with an influencer, it needs they need to be able to click a button and or tap a button uh, or shout to Alexa and be able to 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 buy that that
1: object that item. Yeah, I agree. Okay, look, I don't want to take up any more of your time. This has been a ton of fun for me. Hopefully, it's been a ton of fun for you. I want to thank you, Adam Simon. U.S. Head of Innovation at UM Worldwide for coming and doing this. It was awesome for me. Thank you.
0: Michael, it's been a ton of fun. Thank you so much for having me.